Well, uh, we are back in the book of Daniel, so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And as you're doing that, I'll say a little prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your great love for us. We are so thankful for the truth of those songs that we could sing about how your love never fails us and that you have rescued us from sin and death. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and give us ears to hear what your word is saying. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be pleased. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my God. Amen. Well, friends of mine, they told me about a little incident that happened between them and some friends of theirs that they had invited over for dinner along with their young child. Uh, the child was running around the house having some fun and came bursting into the kitchen where the two couples were speaking and grabbed my friend's iPad off the kitchen counter and smashed it onto the floor, shattering the screen. Now the two couples, they looked on in shock and horror, and then one of the child's parents blurted out, we'll pay for half of the repair costs. And then they suggested that my friend should pay for the other half because, well, they shouldn't have left the iPad out where their child could have got a hold of it. Now my friends told me this story because they didn't know quite how to respond. They wondered, were they wrong to feel like the parents should have at least offered to cover the entire cost of the repair? Or was it unreasonable for them to expect an apology from their friends on behalf of their child? Or were the parents free of, free of any responsibility or culpability because, well, they weren't the ones who did the damage? They had raised the child and taught the child to know better so it was up to the kid to apologize and to make amends. My friends wanted to show grace in this situation, but it's difficult. They didn't feel that this other couple's response to their child's actions was sufficient. And needless to say, not only did this incident make for an awkward dinner, but it put a strain on the relationship between these two couples. Today, we are returning to the book of Daniel. And in chapter 9, we see Daniel acting quite contrary to these parents. He takes responsibility for other people's offenses. Daniel not only feels remorse for the actions of others, but he, he apologizes. He asks God for forgiveness for the sins that his ancestors committed. Why? I think Daniel does this because he loves God more than he loves his own honor and reputation, and he understands that a right Relationship requires repentance. Let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Well, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. 
We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the law that he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you and you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord, our God, is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this chapter starts out by telling us uh, when this account took place. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. And this is significant for understanding the urgency of Daniel's prayer. See, first of all, Darius's reign was approximately 50 years after Daniel and the people of Judah were taken captive and exiled to Babylon. And Darius's reign also marked the end of the Babylonian Empire's rule and the beginning of Persian rule. Verse 2 says that what prompted Daniel's prayer was his reading of the words of Jeremiah. There's a good chance he might have been reading Jeremiah 25, 11, which says, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. Or perhaps he was reading Jeremiah 29.10, which says, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises to you and bring you back to this place. 
See, these prophecies from Jeremiah would have filled Daniel with hope and urgency. He was taken to Babylon as a youth, and now as an old man, he reads that after 70 years, that God will punish the king of Babylon, and he will bring his people back to Israel. And he has just witnessed how the king of Babylon was punished. Remember back in Daniel chapter 5, when King Belshazzar, he sees this hand appear, and it starts to write on the wall, and he calls Daniel in, and he tells the king it's a message from God, that God has numbered his days and given the kingdom to the Medes and Persians. And we read in Daniel 5.30, it says that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. So there it is. The Babylonian king is punished. It's no wonder that Daniel is getting excited because according to what he's reading in Jeremiah and what's just taken place, it seems that a return to Jerusalem, it's just around the corner. And the king of the Babylonians, he's been punished. Seventy years are almost up. Maybe, just maybe, Daniel is hoping that the return will happen within his lifetime. But why pray? Right? If prophecy, if the prophecy says that Israel will be returned after 70 years, does it matter whether or not Daniel prays? Absolutely. You see, Daniel prays because he understands why it is that Israel ended up in captivity in the first place. And it wasn't just because Babylon was some bigger, badder nation that wanted more power for itself. Israel was in exile because they were being punished for their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. You see, Israel wasn't like any other nation. They had committed themselves to this relationship with Yahweh. They had made a covenant with him, which is like making wedding vows, right? Committing to live faithfully with one another. And Deuteronomy 28 tells us that according to the covenant that God and his people made with each other, that if Israel lived within the covenant, if they were to keep God's ways, if they were to uh, obey his commands, well, then God would keep them in the land and that he would bless them. However, if Israel chose not to partner with God, if they rebelled and worshipped other gods, if they did horrible atrocities like child sacrifice, like some of the nations around them did, well, then God would punish them, and that punishment would include exile. And we see at the very beginning of this book, it says in Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. It was God who gave them over to the Babylonians. And Daniel recognizes this. And here in chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, he says, We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his law that he gave us. Through his servants, the prophets, all of Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. So this exile is Israel's punishment for breaking their covenant with Yahweh. And here is why Daniel prays. Because punishment from God is not meant to be just punitive. It's intended to be corrective. God's desire is always to be in right relationship with people, 
But restoring broken relationships doesn't just come through time served. It must include changed hearts. And Israel understood this, right? In 1 Kings 8, when King Solomon, he prays to the Lord, dedicating the temple, he knows that they're likely to go astray. But he prays this, he says, When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you, and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave their ancestors. See, Solomon recognizes that it needs a change of heart. It's like when my children were little and they would, you know, get into fights with one another and then we would put them into time out, right? Time out, the great effective tool of parents everywhere right? And the point of the punishment was not just to give them a consequence for their misbehaving, but it was also to provide them with an opportunity for them to reflect on their actions and their attitudes, right? If I called them out after the the set time was up and they refused to apologize, if they continued to make excuses for their actions and if they continued to fight, could we say that the punishment served its purpose? No. But if the time came up and they were contrite and sorry for what they had done, if they were motivated to move forward in a better way, that was the change of heart necessary for reconciliation. And it's why Daniel prays. Because a right relationship requires repentance. But the really curious thing about Daniel repenting in this prayer is that he confesses his own culpability in sinning against God right alongside the rest of Israel. And tell me, where have we seen Daniel sin? In this entire book, we have not seen Daniel fail one time, right? And this is unique in the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Moses, Joseph or David. It seems like the Bible goes out of its way to shine the spotlight on their failures, right? on their inconsistency and their moral compromises. And so Daniel, he's really unique in the Bible. He's portrayed as this good and faithful Israelite who ends up in Babylon on no fault of his own, but because of the sins of the generations that have gone before him. It would be easy, wouldn't it, for Daniel to feel like he's just a victim, suffering because of somebody else's choices, to be bitter, to feel morally superior, not only to the Babylonian culture around him, but also to the generations that have gone before him. But rather than absolve himself of any responsibility, Daniel actually humbles himself and takes the lead in being accountable and owning the sin of the people of Israel. In verse 3, it says that he turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So fasting is when somebody stops eating food and sackcloth is like wearing a uncomfortable burlap-like sack. And these, um, these actions, along with putting ashes on your head, these are all signs of mourning and penitence, showing that Daniel is sorry and remorseful for Israel's failures. In verses 5 and 6, he says, We have sinned and done wrong. 
We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, to all the people of the land. It would have been so easy for Daniel to have prayed, they have sinned, Lord. You know, or, or Israel has transgressed. But he doesn't do that, right? He makes it personal. He doesn't distance himself from the blame. He includes himself. He takes responsibility. And I think Daniel does that for a couple of reasons. First of all, when Daniel thinks of his identity, he cannot do so apart from the people of God. He is an Israelite. As such, he has benefited from being a part of the covenant people of God in the good times. However, when Israel has been unfaithful. Daniel also suffers the consequences right alongside the rest of the nations for their sins, even if he as an individual has not sinned. Perhaps this idea of corporate responsibility seems a little foreign to us, you know, but the Bible, because it teaches, the Bible does teach this individuals that we are accountable for our own actions. However, it places a far greater emphasis on the shared responsibility and accountability than our Western propensity towards individualism is comfortable with. The second reason I think Daniel is willing to humble himself like this is his view of the character of God. His view of the character of God not only shapes this prayer that he prays, but also how Daniel views himself not as some victim or martyr. And the main way that Daniel views the character of God is righteous. God is righteous. Four times in this passage, Daniel describes God this way. Now the word righteous in Hebrew, it's the word tzedek. And when we think of the word righteous, often we can think of somebody who is a morally good person. But in the Bible, the word tzedek it's all about being in right relationships with other people. Righteousness in the Bible, it can only be demonstrated in relationship. It's all about how you treat other people. And because Daniel believes that God is righteous in everything he does, he says that in verse 14, and that the same cannot be said about himself, Daniel has no problem humbling himself. It's because of God's righteousness that Daniel humbles himself and it should do the same for us. Psalm 145, 17 says that the Lord is right and good in all his ways, that he is kind in all his works. Same can't be said for me. Dave is not good and right in all his ways. Unfortunately, I am not kind in all my works. And so, when I consider God's righteousness compared to mine, the only proper response is humility. Righteousness, God's righteousness, should produce humility in us. Notice what else Daniel says in verse 14 about God's righteousness. He says, The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. So here Daniel acknowledges that God has done right by Israel by bringing disaster on them. 
This shows us that one of the ways that God relates rightly with human beings is in his role of judge. God is responsible for maintaining justice and evaluating human behavior. And our rebellion, or our unrighteousness, it requires repercussions. Imagine, if you would for a moment, if there was a burglar in our neighborhood who was apprehended after having broken into several homes. Maybe even your home. Maybe he broke into the church and stole expensive sound equipment or computers. And after being apprehended, he was brought before the judge. And the judge looked at him and said, you know, you've been a very naughty boy. And wagged his finger at him and said, I hope you don't do this again. And set him free. I think we would all be outraged, wouldn't we? That this is not justice, right? For a judge to be righteous, they must bring serious consequences on evil and injustice. And Daniel, he acknowledged that God did right by Israel by bringing this disaster upon them for their wicked behavior. But here's another thing about God's righteousness. It not only results in our punishment, but his righteousness is also what precipitates our forgiveness. It compels God to show us mercy to forgive and restore us. Look at how Daniel appeals to God's righteousness as he prays for forgiveness. Starting in verse 16, he says, he says, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because of your city and your people who bear your name. The righteousness of God that brings justice also forgives and it restores, right? It brings reconciliation. It mends relationships. It puts us in right standing again. Old Testament theologian Tim Mackey, he says that God brings consequences on human evil, but he always does so matched and in tandem with his covenant promises. In Genesis 12, God reveals his ultimate purpose is to bring blessing to his enemies and to restore and forgive his world that we have ruined. If God only punished us, he would not be righteous because he made a promise to bless and restore and heal this world but neither would God be righteous if he didn't punish destructive human behavior. God must deal with sin and evil, but his righteous character must also restore. If there isn't restoration of relationships, then it's not really righteous. Ultimately, God's righteousness is intended to result in our righteousness, in reconciliation, relationships made right again with him and with others. But it requires repentance. It's not that repentance in and of itself makes us right or forgives us. It's Jesus who does that, right? Jesus took the punishment for our sins when he was killed on the cross, and it's Jesus who offers us forgiveness and freedom. But only if we will turn from going in our own way acknowledge the wrongs that we have done, and turn and follow him. That's exactly what repenting is. It's turning from going one way and now following him. And in 1 John 1, Jesus 
John writes, if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, there's that word, unrighteousness. If you trust Jesus, if you confess your sins and receive forgiveness and salvation, you are right with God today. And if this is the first time that you've done that, or if you want to do that, we would love to pray and talk with you about that. Romans 2.4 says, It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Thank you, God, for your kindness. Repentance is an opportunity. It's not a bad word. It's, it leads to freedom. Tremper Longman says that at the heart of the Christian faith is repentance. And repentance flows from a faith in God, in a God who forgives. But then he goes on to say this. Repentance is also at the heart of reconciliation amongst God's human creatures. When I think about that line there, repentance is also at the heart of reconciliation amongst God's human creatures. And then I reflect on Daniel here confessing on behalf of all of God's people, even though he wasn't complicit for the sin that landed them in Babylon, I cannot help but think about how churches and Christians have responded to several issues within our society today that need reconciliation. Specifically came to mind, my mind as I was preparing this week was residential schools. In 2013, I was a part of a group that had the privilege of making an expression of reconciliation at the Truth and, National, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's national event when it came to Vancouver. Our group was mostly made up of pastors, denominational leaders, and a few congregants who were grieved by what was done in the name of Christ. And we wanted right relationships with indigenous communities and our indigenous neighbors. And so we felt that it was appropriate for us to repent, to turn from going in the way that we were going and to walk in a better way, to acknowledge the wrongs that we had done and commit to walking together. So in the part of the expression that I was able to share, I said, Jesus said that we are to love God and love our neighbors. And we confess that we have failed in our love and care towards our indigenous neighbors. We commit to working towards reconciliation as we follow the example of Jesus whose life and mission modeled reconciliation, peacemaking, and bringing justice. We commit to growing in our understanding of your history and culture, your attachment to and care for the land and to educating those with misconceptions in our communities. And we commit to growing in mutual relationships of trust and respect. Now, most people in our churches who heard our expression, they were actually very grateful that we did that. And they wanted to know that we represented them too when we said those words. That they were sorry for what had happened in the name of Christ. And they also were wanting to commit themselves to doing better. But it wouldn't surprise you, I think, to know that there were a few in the church who actually took offense 
They felt there's no need to apologize for something that we didn't do or maybe didn't have knowledge of. Some suggested this is solely a Catholic or Anglican or United Church issue, not ours. And while others called me out saying that as a pastor, I misrepresented them, right? And I possibly jeopardized the church, suggesting that apologizing might make us legally culpable. I think I felt as awkward in those conversations as my friends did when the parents of that child smashed their iPad, refused to apologize or take any responsibility for their kid. What those parents should have said in that moment is, we are so sorry, what can we do to make things right? Because this is their child. He is a part of the same family, and for better or worse, friends, when one family member takes some actions, it impacts the rest. And like Daniel, we Christians, those who bear the name of Christ, we cannot think of our identity apart from the rest of the body of Christ, others who bear his name. As such, we benefit from being a part of God's covenant people in the good times. But when the church is unfaithful, we also suffer the consequences right alongside the rest even if we as individuals or as congregations haven't sinned ourselves. Like Daniel, I cannot absolve myself of responsibility for the church's role in residential schools just because I didn't do it. I call myself a Christian. I identify myself with Christ. And the church which bears the name of Christ sinned against God and indigenous people, fracturing the relationship. And Jesus said we are to love our neighbors and repentance is at the heart of reconciliation. A right relationship requires this repentance, and so I've got no hesitation confessing because I believe that's what being obedient to Jesus' command to love requires. Now, people might object. They often do object. They say, this is too political, and I have to admit, I don't understand what they mean when they're saying that. When I read the Gospels, and I see that when Jesus comes, he is calling people to be a part of the kingdom of God. He's saying, be citizens of the kingdom of God when you live in this way. I see when Peter writes in 2 Peter 9, he says, you are a holy people, right? You are chosen. You are a, a holy nation, he calls you. We are a holy nation, and whenever it comes to affairs between nations, friends. It's always political. As citizens of the kingdom of God, everything we do in obedience to Jesus is political. When I hear Christians adamantly refusing to take any responsibility for the injustices done by the church, both in history and today, I want to also ask if they're willing to abdicate all the blessings that come along with being a part of the family of God, too. In 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue righteousness. Run after righteousness with all that you've got. And remember, friends, righteousness is not about being morally good. It's primarily about right relationships. 
God calls us to pursue right relationships with him and with others, with our neighbors, with our enemies. And a right relationship requires repentance. And it certainly requires humility. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul, he says that all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That last verse there is so profound. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Jesus never sinned, so he didn't have to die, just like Daniel didn't have to repent. But God had Jesus do it so that you and I could have a right relationship with God. And not only that, Paul says that we now become the righteousness of God. That means a whole lot more than just some legal standing before God of not guilty. By becoming the righteousness of God, Paul says that we are now his ambassadors. We're God's representatives. And so just as God's righteous character looks to restore and heal and bless, well, now that's our mission too. So we look to restore and to heal and bless. And not because it's done out of any sort of obligation, but because Christ's love compels us to. So if we're going to heal our relationships with others, if we're going to help them to restore their relationship with God, well then we are going to have to be willing to repent too because a right relationship requires it. This morning we celebrated communion. I love the Lord's table. We remember and thank God for the great lengths in which he went in order to reconcile me and you. Often when we come to this table, like this morning, Brenda, she, she gave us a little bit of time like to consider where are some places that we need to open up our lives to God to invite him in, right? Maybe areas that we have kept him out. So we turn from our way and we open it up to him. That's repenting. But we also not only are often encouraged to get right with God when we come to the table, but also to get right with one another because how can we celebrate something that's all about restoration while we're still holding grudges or withholding apologies? This is what should characterize you and I as followers of Jesus, a willingness to confess a desire to forgive, and the hope for the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on the earth through his blood shed on the cross. And so today, I think we should all be encouraged to seek out those people and those places where our relationships aren't right. To extend forgiveness, to offer an apology, and this this isn't easy, but the Spirit of God promises to go with us, and this is what following Jesus is all about, and this is what he did for you and me.